All right. Good evening. As uh, Pastor Kevin said, my name is Dan Chapman. Uh, it's nice to have uh, been part of this church for the last couple of years. Um, I've known Kevin, Pastor Kevin and Ross for a long time. Um, and so it's been nice to be a part of this church. Uh, my family lives over in Otisville, and so uh, we've lived there for about seven years. Um, it's kind of unique uh, with the Lions being in the uh, a- NFC Championship game. It's not like uh, back in the day. I don't know if you guys remember this. When you had something, an event like this, you used to have to like put the v- VHS disc in, and then you had to set the timer, and then it would turn your TV on, and you had to hope that you, you had AM and not PM or PM and not AM, and then when you got home, you could fast forward through it all. Like that's how it used to be. Now the TV just records it for you, and we'll be the ones that get to watch the first half without any commercials. So that's how we can look at that this evening. Before we get started, um, I'd just like to pray, and then uh, we'll get going here this morning or this evening. God, we thank you so much uh, for your wisdom. I know in James 1, you say that if anyone lacks wisdom, that we can ask you and you'll give it to us abundantly. I pray, Father, that uh, you would help us tonight. Um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. You would open uh, our hearts up and that we would hear your word. And I pray, Father, that you would just help me to speak clearly. We thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm not a pastor. I don't have a series of sermons uh, that I practice or that I write down. And so when Pastor Kevin asked me to speak, uh, I was uh, thinking, what do I speak on? You know, I don't know necessarily everybody here. I certainly don't know the church or the history of it. And so I was just like, well, I will share what God has taught me over the last several years. And hopefully um, this will help you as well. Yesterday, my wife and I went to uh, a funeral of a friend. Uh, he was 92 years old. He's been my friend, I can say, probably for the last 17 years as a friend. But probably prior to that, he was a guy that came to a basketball game of mine when I was a kid at 15 years old. And he started coming and watching basketball games at GCS. And he would come after the game and he would talk to me and just say, hey, Dan, it was fun watching you play. And then when I got to college, he would come to my college basketball games. And then when I came home, I was 27 or 28 when I moved back here. He would come to my men's league games, and we became friends. And from that point on, he would come and talk to me at these different games. I was the athletic director at GCS, and yesterday um, was his funeral, and it was one of those things where you're like, here's a guy that had no business having an impact on my life, and yet because he was willing to reach out, here's a 92-year-old man that I got to go to his funeral and listen to other people talk about his impact on others. And so as I speak tonight, I really speak through Jonah. This guy was the reflection of what I think God is trying to teach Jonah. Um, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, in a trailer park in Flint, Michigan. Uh, If there is ever uh, in our society today, there's a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I feel like if you want to solve that problem, have everybody grow up in a trailer park in Flint. And I think you could solve a lot of those problems. Um, I grew up in that manner up until I was about 11 or 12 years old. I didn't really know much about like whether that was a good or a bad thing. Um, but at 11, my parents decided that they were going to move. And so we decided, I as a kid, didn't really understand. I was actually mad at my parents because my whole world was inside of this place. Like all my friends were there. I could ride my bike to my other friend's house. I was close. So as a child, I couldn't really understand all the other thoughts or processes of like, hey, why would my parents want to leave this place? You know, this is where everything is at. 
I couldn't understand that. And so I was actually upset. I was a little frustrated with them. And I remember telling my mom that I didn't want to leave. And so I couldn't understand that. And I think sometimes when I think about being a Christian and I think about what God is doing, I think oftentimes that Christians, we are children trying to figure out and not being able to see the whole picture of what God is doing. And so at times we think this is my world. How could God not? And we put God into this little line. And when God doesn't fit into our line, we're like, God, how? Why wouldn't you act this way? I expect you to act this way because this is the world that I see you in. And God is saying, no, 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 I have all these bigger and greater plans. And you're just this part of it. And Jonah, we find in chapter 4, Jonah is struggling with this reality. And I don't think he can understand or comprehend what God has done. So as we look into Jonah today, we'll do our best to try and take a look and see a couple things in the book of Jonah, but mainly God's grace and his love towards us. Uh, Jonah's a familiar story. Uh, you guys all probably, this is one of the most famous stories in the, in the world, let alone as Christians. But Jonah chapter 1, we read God comes to Jonah and he tells him, hey, go speak uh, to uh, Nineveh or Assyria, the, the kingdom at that time. If you were to think of modern day Assyria, it would be Iraq. And so if you can imagine in today's terms, if God came to a Jew and said, hey, you need to go into the capital of Iraq and speak and tell these people that their city is going to be destroyed in 40 days. If they don't believe the God of the Israelites, you can kind of get the picture of what Jonah was asked to do. All right. And the ironic thing is, is as mean and as bad and gruesome as the Assyrian kingdom was at that time, the world power at that time. Even that, as we read in Jonah chapter 4, that wasn't really the scary part for Jonah, even though we would probably think that was what would have scared him. But that wasn't necessarily what scared him. But he said, hey, I'm fleeing. So he got on a merchant ship, and he said, I'm going the other direction. He headed to Tarshish. Uh, the seas came up. God provided a sea. The sailors on the boat cast lots, and they said, hey, Jonah, you're the problem. What did you do? And Jonah's first answer out of his mouth was, hey, I'm a Hebrew, and I'm running from my God. That's basically what he told them. And so the sailors said, okay, you need to pray to your God and tell him to stop. And Jonah said, the only thing that's going to help is you can throw me in the sea. And the sailors were like, nope, we're sailors. We'll row this boat to shore. We know what to do. And God said, no, you're not going to do that either. And he made the storms worse. So finally they said, God, forgive us, but we're throwing this guy in. And so they threw him into the sea and it immediately calmed. So Jonah, trying to avoid telling others about Christ, what did it say? As soon as, as soon as they cast him into the sea and the seas calmed, what did they do? They all feared the Lord. So Jonah tried to avoid sharing the gospel, yet even these sailors recognized God immediately. Chapter 2, we find Jonah. God provided a, a pointed a fish at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2, Jonah's in the belly of the whale. He recognizes, hey, I'm dying. God save me. Uh, and at the very end of uh, Jonah chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, salvation is of the Lord. He recognizes that only God can provide salvation. And so he says, God, I vow to do whatever my vows are to you. Salvation is of the Lord. So God says, okay. He spits him back up on dry land. And in Jonah chapter 3, he goes to Nineveh. He shares the gospel. He tells them that if they don't repent, their town's going to be destroyed. And what does Nineveh do? They repent. Within a day, the king orders a decree that everyone must put on sackcloth and ashes. Even the cattle, even the animals must do that. 
And they repent. And you would think Jonah would end in Jonah chapter 3 where he says, And Jonah went back to his homeland and everybody was happy. But for whatever reason, we get to Jonah chapter 4 and it's this surprise kind of change ending to how the story goes. And so we look in Jonah chapter 4, and I'll read the chapter for you, and then I promise I only have two thoughts. I think they asked me to speak because I speak fast, and then we'll be done. All right? Jonah chapter 4, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself. There he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and thus it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? What do you know their right hand, who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. I find this such an interesting chapter to end the book of Jonah. And we see here a couple things. And I think the main thing that Jonah is struggling with in this chapter, from what I can read and understand, is that he didn't understand God's love. He struggled understanding God's compassion and love. Um, to take you back just maybe 30 seconds, when I say about five years ago, I was listening to sermons in my drive from Tim Keller on Jonah. And that began to make me think about my life in this book and how it reflected to me. So then I've recently read a couple books. One of them is Tim Keller's book on the prodigal prophet, which is on Jonah. And the other one is Jerry Bridges' book on God's grace. And they both kind of fit into, so none of these thoughts are probably super original with me. (laughs) And so just so you know, like those are two great books that I would look at as far as uh, looking at the, the story of Jonah. We see here in the very first verse of Jonah chapter 4, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. In the Hebrew, that can be translated out to, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Jonah didn't just see it as, this upsets me. He actually saw the repentance of Nineveh as evil to him. Jonah wasn't just looking at what took place and saying, Oh man, I can't believe this happened, God. This is amazing. No, he actually took it as an offense that God would save or not punish the nation of of Assyria. He was actually angry about this, so much where he thought it was evil. And so we look and we say, okay, what was causing this disapproval? Why did Jonah disapprove of God's mercy and grace when he's the one who preached it? It would be like a basketball player practicing basketball, making all his shots, and then being upset that he made all his shots. Jonah, or a preacher in this case, 
preaching, wanting the people to hear the message that he taught. They hear the message, and then he's mad that they heard the message. This doesn't make any sense. What would bring this type of anger and frustration to Jonah? So we look, and we're going to look at a couple things. God even asked him, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, is it, does it make sense for you to be angry? Why would you have this type of anger? And I, so I think I want to look at tonight and just see, first, there's a couple surface reasons that we can see why Jonah would be angry. And then probably his ultimate root reason for why he's angry. And then finish with God pointing Jonah to his great love. So we'll just look at these real quick. First of all, number one, Jonah's surface reasons for being angry. And I think we can, again, when we look at Jonah's life, when I put this onto my own life, I can look and see that these are probably things that all of us as Christians eventually struggle with, which is, I think, is why Jonah is such an important passage of Scripture, why God, even Jesus, mentions Jonah multiple times in his teaching, that this was important Parable story. I know a lot of people like to say, oh, man, this is just a story that was written. But I think God shows us and says, no, no. When Jesus says he announces it in Luke that, hey, no, this is about a greater Jonah, right, that is coming. He's saying, no, this isn't just a story that happened. This is something that took place. Jonah chapter one, we read uh, in Jonah one, one, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. All right. So if we think about, okay, who is Jonah, the son of Amittai, we can find a story of him back in second Kings. So in second Kings chapter 14, you can see that Jonah worked with King Jeroboam to help restore the borders of Israel. So if we look back, second Kings 1425 says he restored the borders of Israel. This is talking about King Jeroboam from Labo Hamath. As far as the sea of Araha, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, who was from gath So in the time frame is it's somewhere in 780 B.C. Jonah worked with King Jeroboam to resecure the borders of Judah. So in other words, Judah had been taken over and Jonah was a part of the prophet that would tell the king, God is telling us we can go and move here and take this over. So Jonah was more than just a guy that's out there. Jonah was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? When the, when the sailors asked him, who are you? His first answer was, I'm a Hebrew. That's what was important to Jonah. All right. And so Jonah, it was very important that he secured the borders and protected the nation of Israel. That was one of his main thought processes. So when Jonah was told to go to Assyria, the people who had dominated the Israelites, and if you read anything about the history of Assyria, he would have known things that you and I can only read about, but he probably had to witness and see when he was told to go to Assyria, he was like, I'm not going to those people. So what did he do? He ran the opposite direction to guarantee what? Those people would never see the mercy of God. That's why Jonah was fleeing, right? And many commentators, writers, pastors, will say Jonah was racist. That was his reason. Why? Because he was a Hebrew first. And he could not see himself allowing those people to accept Christ. Why? Because he was like, hey, they conquered our land. Jonah here clearly was angry about this. Securing, preserving the nation of national interest of, of Israel was Jonah's job. Being proud of who he is isn't the bad part for Jonah, right? That's not the bad part. I think we all can be proud. I think in America, we would very much stand up and say, I'm proud to be an American, right? I think that's part of what we live for. It's what makes our country great. Jonah took it to the next step, though, right? Where he begins to look at his nation and his group as the only chosen group that deserves the mercy of God. 
And he's beginning to take this into a step where he's like, he thinks he knows more than God and actually despises God for the grace that he offers him. Even in uh, chapter 4 here, when Jonah, chapter 4, and he begins this prayer, and he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God, and a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You know what Jonah's quoting there? He is quoting Exodus 34. When God, if you remember the Israelites in the time of Exodus, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, he has the tablets, and what are the children of Israel doing? They're worshiping the golden calf, correct? And so what was God's promise to them? That he was going to destroy them, correct? And so Moses goes and prays on behalf of the Israelites and says, God, please don't destroy them. And, and here Jonah is quoting God back to God. He's saying, God, this was the message you sent to us as Israelites, that you were slow to anger, gracious, kind, abounding in steadfast love. He's using that quote back to God about his own nation, saying he was worthy of it. They deserved it. He knew that they deserved it. But this nation over here, they don't deserve it. Right? They shouldn't have this. We see Jonas would probably then pass into that sense of, on that surface, probably self-righteous. Right? He's moving into that category of self-righteous where I deserve this based on my heritage based on my knowledge i'm a prophet right god speaks through me i know what god deserves and what god wants and so he begins to into this mode of i'm self-righteous right in uh, jonah chapter 2 if you remember when he's in the belly of the whale in verse 7 he's he's clearly recognizing that he needs god and so he says when my life was fainting away I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. So he acknowledges in Jonah chapter 2 that he needed God, right? He recognized that he himself needed God. He was going to die unless God helped him. And he says, what, you heard my prayer where? In your holy temple. You heard me. And so he says in verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He acknowledges, God, I need your salvation, and you're the only one that can provide it. I needed you. And then, now, he's looking at it saying, God, why would you offer it to these individuals over here? So he's kind of beginning to look at himself and say, I deserve this, but they do not. And Jonah, (laughs) sorry, Jonah knew he needed God's grace in that moment, and he recognized that God only had the power to save him. In Jonah 4, he prays and says he knew God was gracious and merciful, right? In that prayer, the same word that God says he relented the punishment is the same word that you read all the way back in Exodus 34, where God relented his evil to the children of Israel. He was using the same language to say that, God, I recognize that you did this for me, but that is why I do not want them to hear it. And he's beginning this mode of saying, I deserve this. I get to have this. But they should not be able to have this. I look at that and obviously self-righteous. Self-righteous comparison is probably one of the natural directions of the heart. Right? Um, If you think about uh, the story of the prodigal son and the older brother, this is probably the older brother portion of that story. Right? The prodigal son ran away, wasted all his spoils. He comes back. And what is the older son? He comes out of the woods. He hears the party going on. And what does he say? 
He says, I'm not going in there. Luke 15:28 says, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I did what? Listen to all the things he says. I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who was devote, uh, devoured, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. What's his problem? He says, look at all these good things I've done. And you've never honored me with that same type of honoring. But here is this sinner who wasted all your stuff and you're going to give him everything. I think self-righteous comparison is something that naturally takes place. It's the hardest thing to defend inside of our own hearts, right? I see myself and my family and our moral decisions and the things we decide to do. And look how good our life is. And look at all the bad decisions this family does, and you can tell why they are living that way, right? We do these choices correctly, and they do those ones incorrectly, and that's why we have all these things, and they don't have anything. Or that's why they're in trouble, and and, and we're not. And I think that's basically where Jonah is at in this decision. He's literally looking and saying, God, I deserve all this because I'm of the nation of Israel, and they do not. It often is probably why our churches all generally look the same. All the people inside look the same, right? It's probably why we generally have a natural draw to one another because we think in the same mode, in the same line. And those that think outside of this line, there's a different church for them someplace else. That's why there's 30 churches in the Lapeer area, right? And that's where Jonah is just simply looking. And that's where God, I think, is trying to point Jonah and say, look at this in your life. Jonah, obviously we can say, okay, these are the surface problems with Jonah. But Jonah actually is struggling with something much deeper because he gets to the point in Jonah chapter 4 where he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Right? I've I've been sad before. I certainly have been uh, in despair uh, in my life. I certainly grieved. I don't think I've ever reached the point of depression or anything like that. Um, But Jonah has reached a point here where he has decided that there's nothing else to live for. So we would say that's probably greater problem than just like he was self-righteous, right? Like that's probably part of the problem. But he clearly has something else inside of him that is literally asking the God of the universe. Remember this. He's speaking to the God of the universe, telling God he has no purpose left to live, right? So that means what? He was living for a different purpose. So Jonah here is battling more than just, hey, I think I'm good. He's battling the fact that, hey, I've got another God I'm living for, right? He has two gods in his life, much like all of us have constant gods that we probably bring up, idols that we battle with. Jonah is now realizing his God has been destroyed and he doesn't know what to live for anymore. He was using the God of the Bible to accomplish the God of his life, and he just realized that the God of his life just was destroyed, and he doesn't know if he can live for the God of the Bible. And so we see here Jonah battling this dual idol. The Bible says in James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, right? He tells us that you can't live for both God and mammon, right? You either love the one or hate the other, despise the other, right? That's Jonah's battle. He's trying to battle something inside because he has something in his heart that is not of Christ. So that's why um, Ezekiel 14, 3, God says this about the elders of Israel. He says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Right? This wasn't something they were outside worshiping. This was something that meant more to him 
than anything else. Jonah was a good person who allowed a good thing to become an idol into his life. And I think too often times, we as Christians certainly can have this same problem. Pastor Kevin mentioned this uh, this morning in church in Proverbs 4. Uh, he said, "What well, keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. But Jonah was battling something inside of him that did not fit with God. And so what was his response? I don't want to live anymore. I don't have anything to live anymore. Tim Keller puts it this way. A false God is anything so central and essential in your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. You say, how do I know if I'm battling with something like that? I certainly don't have anything that if it went bad for me, I would want to stop living. Well, it's probably going to be when you're praying, God, if I could have this, and the answer doesn't come true, or you don't get that, or you see somebody else here get what you're wanting, are you upset about that? Am I angry about that? What in your life do you look at and say, if I have that, then I will feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That's what Jonah was looking for. He was looking for something that would give him value, and he knew... That if the Assyrians were destroyed, if the Nineveh was destroyed, what would happen? The kingdom of Israel would be secure. And he wouldn't have to worry. But you know what happened? Forty-some years later, the Assyrian army, God used the Assyrian army to punish the Israelites and wipe out most of the ten tribes of Israel. But he knew that if they were destroyed and God did bring judgment on them, Israel would be secure in his life would be accomplished his god would have been attained his value would be purposed i believe god shows us the story of jonah so we can learn to praise god for his love for us and trust that his ways are perfect for my life even when i don't understand it how do i avoid this i think colossians 3 much like what pastor kevin was talking with today colossians 3 1 tells us what since then you have been raised with christ set your hearts on things above Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. I think oftentimes it's easy for us, and this is what I I think all the time. If you want to know what your idol is, you probably should ask your friends. All right, because your friends probably recognize it all the time. They probably see it. Oh, man, that person, yeah, he just loves money. Oh, that person, these are the easy ones, right? They love money. This person over here, all they care about is sports, right? That's an easy one to get somebody on. Oh, this person just cares about fame. This person, all he wants is power. If you're wondering what yours is, you probably should ask your friends, right? Because they know what it is, and if they're kind enough, they might tell it to you. You go, I don't do that, right? But more than likely, it's probably true, a part of our life, all right? But if we are looking to say what is a good thing, not bad things, those are all good things. Children can be idols, right? This church can be an idol to somebody who thinks this is the most important thing. If I just can be in charge of the church, then I can have this certain. Anything can be a good idol that I take too far and too much. That's what Jonah did right here. And God is just simply trying to tell Jonah, you've gone too far with this. And so how does he show him this? I think we see here Jonah was angry not because God did something that wasn't righteous. He was angry because he could not understand, I think Keller puts it, the promiscuous love of God. 
that God was willing to give his love to anybody. And Jonah only wanted it given to those he deemed worthy. Those he felt deserved the love of Christ. So God has to explain this to him the best that he can. So that's what the end of the chapter is for. Jonah chapter 4. The end of it is God trying to show Jonah, this is what love looks like. This is my patient, infinite, patient, kindness, love. And the amazing part about God here in this, and we'll see it to both people, to Jonah. Remember, Jonah, God, Jonah ran away, right? God could have been like, fine, I'll find somebody else, right? But no, God went and got him, brought him back. Now Jonah's complaining that, God, why'd you do this? God could have been like, fine, Jonah, yep, go your way, pity on you, you'll, you know, it'll be all right. No, God is trying to reach out and show Jonah his incredible patience to him. Look, Jonah, I still love you, even though we don't see eye to eye. Let me show you what my love is like. But then also his infinite love to a nation like Israel or to to Nineveh, to the nation of Assyria, to show them that even though they're wicked and evil, and most of us would never say that that is something that I agree with, God is saying I still love them. I still care about them. We see it uh, here in in, uh, Jonah chapter 5. He says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east. So if you picture Nineveh, Nineveh was across from a river. He was on the east side. If you look back into the city, he was basically saying, I'm going to go sit up on this hill, look back into the city. It was a magnificent city. It was one of the largest cities, probably the largest city in the world at that time. He's looking back into the city and he says, I want to see what's going to happen. Is basically what he's saying. Maybe God will still do this. And, and basically he's looking at this. So he builds a little hut. It's in the summertime, probably 115, 120 degrees. So he's, he's sitting in a, a little little huddle and it says here and this is uh the fourth time that god uses this type of language but it says now the lord god appointed a plant and so that that phrase appointed is used four times in this once for the fish and then three times right here and i think it's important that the author is using appointed to make the point that god is the one that's in control of it and what i love about it it's god is in control of this individual's happenings right we're a lot of times i'm easy to be like yeah there's a hurricane coming God's in control of that, right? But this is for an individual's life. God is appointing a plant for this individual's life. And so when I think about things that are happening in my life, I'm looking around going, wow, like, I don't know everything that takes place in my life, but I can trust that God is probably taking care of it, even something little. So he says he appoints a plant, and the plant grows up in a day. You can read the history on what type of plant that probably was. Uh, the plant grows up in a day, provides him shade, and it says what? It says that Jonah uh, says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. So Jonah was at a point. Here's a, a plant that grew up, and it says he was a, a super happy. He was angry that all these people were about to you know, repent. Now he's super happy about a, a random plant that grew up that just protected him from his shade. So God says the next day he appointed a worm, and the worm ate the plant, right, and took it away. And so you can think about God, again, this infinite love of God, trying to refine Jonah and say, Jonah, hey, here's some good things I offer you. Here's some bad things to help you get your life in the right direction. But then he takes him even a step further and says he sends and appoints an eastern wind to make it so hot on Jonah that, again, he asks God to die. And so you get Jonah to this point where now he's, again, so angry at God. And God does all of that to bring him to the point to ask him the questions, Jonah, how can you care about this plant, right? God is trying to refine Jonah so much. We read uh, uh, Psalm 66.10 says, For you, O God, have tested us. 
You have tried us as silver is tried. God is orchestrating all sorts of things in my life to help me grow, learn, to trust, and love him more. The question often is, is will I see it as that? Or when things are going good in my life, will I see it as the result of my actions, my attitude? Oh, I do these things, and so look what I've done. Or when bad things come into my life, do I see it as, well, that's because so-and-so did this. Do I begin to blame others for bad things coming into my life? And God here is trying to tell Jonah, no, do you have control over any of those things? He asked him here, uh, God said to Jonah in verse 9, says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. Um, I do enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, and nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night and perished in the night. Jonah, you care about a plant that you didn't have anything to do with, nothing at all to do with. You cared about that. You were upset about that. You're sad about that. You're happy about that. And you didn't have anything to do with it. And so he turns it and then says and points his never-ending love and says, So Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Jonah turns, or God turns to Jonah and simply tries to point him out and say, Listen, the way you care about this pointless plant How can I not care even more about this nation that I built up, this country that I put together? How can I not care about this 120,000 people, this massive city that you see here? And I love at the end, and again, I I might speculate in some regards, that he, he ends the verse and the cattle. And you're just like, well, why would he put that there, right? But I think he's trying to make a point to Jonah. You cared about a plant? If you don't care about the people, there's cattle in there too, right? It's almost as if he's trying to make his, his argument to him. If you care enough about this, well, there's other things in there too. If you were too willing to reject the people that are inside of it. And so God here is trying to show, show Jonah, God loves these people. And this love, although we might see it as misguided, because God, look at all the evil they've done. Look at all the evil they brought into us. I think about it in my mind. Certainly, I don't have anybody in my life that has done such an evil to me. Um, Thankfully, at this point, no one's done anything to my family that I would look at and be like, I could never forgive that person for what they did to my family. So I don't know what necessarily Jonah has or can comprehend any of that. But at the same time, I certainly know that I make judgments all the time on people that I see And whether or not I want to be around them or spend time with them or hang out with them. And I certainly am grateful for a guy like Mark Crane who, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, came into my life in a basketball game and was willing to reach out to me who had no business talking to me. I was a kid. I was probably an idiot at that point. Well, probably some, but less of an idiot, more of an idiot back then. And and was willing to reach out and talk to me in that manner and have an impact on my life. And I look here, and that's what I think God is trying to point Jonah to. And I love that the, the story just ends there, much like the story of the prodigal son and the older brother, that there's no answer given, right? Like, I think it's just, this is the answer, right? Should I not pity them? Should you not care? Whether they're the evilest person in the world, should I still not care that God loves them? And he gives them that answer. One author that I was reading, I don't remember who it was, so... I can't give him credit. 
says, In Jesus we have experienced God's abundance, grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. If we show these same things to everyone we meet, no matter who they are, no matter their morals, race, nationality, social class, gender, political beliefs, etc., then we have understood well the lesson of this book in the heart of our Savior. I think ultimately that's what we're looking for in our church, in the United States, around the world, why we send missionaries all over, is because this isn't a gospel for America. This isn't a gospel for us and me and my group of family and the people that I relate best to. This is a gospel for everyone. And I can't see anyone that doesn't deserve it. And I shouldn't live in a manner where I treat people in any way where I don't show them the same love and forgiveness that God showed me. Because if I understand grace, we're just all in the same boat, right? The gospel is for all of us, even as Christians. Because if I fail to recognize that the gospel is to remind me that I'm a sinner... As an older Christian, I should know now more than ever how many times I have failed God on a daily basis. When I'm young as a Christian, what? I think I'm going to do all these great things. But as I get older as a Christian, I realize I keep messing up. I keep falling in sin. I keep struggling on a daily basis with all sorts of things. And I realize every day I need God's love even more. And so here, Jonah, God tries to teach Jonah that he has this infinite, patient love for us and for everyone that's in this world. So I appreciate, uh, let's pray, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. I appreciate you guys this evening. Actually, I think we're going to have a song first. Let's pray. God, I do thank you for your love. I do thank you that you promise us, that you give us this mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I thank you that is the God who saved us. And I thank you that you show us this every day through different lives of individuals who are willing to give and sacrifice for others, even though that person probably didn't deserve it. I thank you for those that are out there that are willing to do this, and I pray that you'd raise up more. I thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen.